0: If you would please take your Bibles and so turn with me to Judges chapter 10. As we continue looking at the book of Judges tonight, we'll be in Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, the writer writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. After him, Jer the Gileadite arose and judged Israel twenty-two years. He had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havoth-Jer to this day. And Jer died and was buried in Cammon. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, Served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Aram, excuse, sons of Ammon, excuse me. they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For eighteen years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress." The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon. He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now one of the things that I have learned by being married is that different families communicate differently. I like talking to my parents, and at least I think they like talking to me, but communication is not always very frequent between us. In my family, generally speaking, no news is good news. Ruby's family, it seems, communicates more than mine does and communicates on a wider variety of topics than mine does. Both approaches have their advantages. Both have their disadvantages. And I'm not here to say that one is right and the other is wrong, but simply to say that the difference is noticeable. Now, as we look to Judges chapter 10 this evening, our first point is the blessing of peace. And what we encounter in the first five verses of Judges chapter 10 is that he treats the history of these two judges in a very short span of time, right? He doesn't, he doesn't tell us much. We've got 45 years here, 23 for Tola, 22 for Jer, and there's not a whole lot of detail that is given. I think Matthew Henry summed up the situation quite well by saying, Quiet and peaceable reigns, though the best to live in, are the worst to write of, as yielding the least variety of manner for the historian to entertain his readers with. Such were the reigns of these two judges, Tola and Jer, who make up but a small figure and take up but a very little room in this history. Now, no doubt, there were interesting things that transpired during these. 23 years of Tola and 22 years of Jer, as interesting events are always happening all around us if we have but eyes to see them. Maybe there were some battles fought. Maybe there was some reformation that occurred in the religious life of Israel. Maybe there were some interesting cases that came before these judges as they had to decide between man and man, various cases. But on the whole, these times seem to have been largely peaceful. Again, if you look at uh, verse 1, there must have been something interesting, something going on here, because we're told that the Tola arose to save Israel. But on the whole, it seems that these days were largely peaceful, days in which the apostasy was not quite nearly so pronounced as it was uh, during the days of, of foreign uh, oppression when, uh, when the foreign armies invaded them under, under Gideon and so on. And obviously we're, we're reading some things into the silence here, I understand. And it's been said that arguments from silence are not particularly strong unless you were expecting a noise. But when we consider that the book of Judges actually specializes in telling us about the apostasies of Israel and the oppressions which Israel suffered during the times of these judges, and when the book of Judges mentions then two judges in quick succession without many details, we might expect, I think, with uh, great cause, that we would have been told a lot more if there were serious things going on in these days. If there was anything along the lines of what was taking place in the days of Ophniel or Ehud or Deborah or Gideon, we probably would have been told more. Even in the case of Shamgar, we're only told about him in one verse at the end of chapter 3, but we're told that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. By comparison, the days of Tola and Jer seem to be relatively tame. But that's okay because God's people still need judges to rule and save them even in days like those. Families, churches, and nations still need leadership in good times. And one mark of good leadership is to be able to keep peace as much as possible and faithfully guide those under your charge even through potentially difficult issues that with God's blessing and help, potential turbulence is brought to nothing. And this is actually the kind of life which we should seek for our families, for our church, and for the state in which we live. Peace and tranquility are good things when they may be had. And thus it is said in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to pray for kings, for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Likewise, Romans twelve eighteen, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Peace and tranquility, along with godliness, is a great good and is worthy of our pursuit. But with that said, we need to understand that this kind of peace and tranquility is not always possible. There's a reason Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There are times when peace is impossible, and when those times are such, they need to be recognized as such and Like it or not, we have to be willing to stand up and take part in the fray on the side of truth and justice, whatever that may be. To maintain a pacifist stance when peace is impossible is not a virtue but a vice, be it in the realm of the home, the realm of the church, or of the state. Sometimes circumstances are such that we must stand up and enter the fray. Sometimes there is no faithful alternative that is actually peaceful. So we should be reminded by the accounts here of Tola and Jer that peace and quiet are great blessings and we should do all that we can to seek it and pursue it and may the Lord grant us such peace in our time. The second thing we see here beginning in verse 6 is the destruction of compromise. The destruction of compromise. Beginning in verse 6, we see something decidedly different in the life of Israel. We have these these first two judges there, verses 1 through 5. And then comes verse 6, and this is not just a little bit of idolatry. This is the return to idolatry and a whole lot of idolatry. And this, if you've been following along in the book of Judges, this description of wickedness is much more extensive than what we have usually been told to this point. Earlier in places like chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, we have this description of, of doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and turning to the Baals and the Ashtaroth. We don't have anything quite like this. Here we have listed out the fullness of their fall and the fullness of their idolatries. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and then also mentioned the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And as we would expect, the Lord's anger burned against them, and there was a reckoning with which they had to deal. We're told that the Lord sold them into the hands of their enemies. And ironically, if you, if you look there, the last two nations mentioned in that list of nations whose gods they embraced, the nations of the sons of Ammon and the Philistines, those were the nations who were now said to be afflicting them, right? They, you see there in, uh, I guess it's verse 6, how at the close of that list you have the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and then the very next verse, verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the hands of the sons of Ammon. The last two nations whose gods they embraced, those are the two nations who are now the ones who are the strokes of the discipline that the Lord inflicted on them. Commentator Andrew Fawcett described the situation this way, seeking to ingratiate themselves with the world at the cost of losing the favor of God, they lost the favor of both in the end. Nay more, the very heathen whom they sought to conciliate by irreligious compromise were made the executioners of God's wrath by his righteous retribution. It is ever so. Wherein one sins, therein he is punished. Formalists begin with trying to combine worldliness with the service of God. Soon they sink down to the abandonment of God and the service of the God of this world. Now certainly we're not given all the intricate details in regard to the, the reasoning of the Israelites as to why they fell into these particular idolatries. Maybe the idolatries seemed more fun, more appealing to the flesh, more relevant perhaps. Maybe it seemed like the worship of these gods worked. Maybe, maybe there was a pragmatic element to it. Maybe they saw the other nations being successful falsely attributed that success to their idolatry and resolved to join with them. Maybe it was intermarriage, right? The uh, Israelite men marrying pagan women, pagan men marrying Israelite young women. Maybe it was an attempt to make peace and get along with their neighbors. We don't know for sure. Maybe there were various elements of compromise coming in uh, to the result of the idolatry. Whatever the reason was, it clearly was compromise With the world. The world set out its wickedness on display, and Israel said, Yes, please, I want some of that. I want to join you in this. And that's what they did. They imbibed the system and the practices of the surrounding world and adopted them as their own. And then God used that very world to judge them. The very people whose gods they served now are the instruments of their punishment. And let this let this be a lesson to us that compromise with the world will always bring about a reversal of our expectations. When we compromise with the world, we do so with the expectation of some advantage or benefit that will subsequently flow to us. But sooner or later, even if there are some temporary advantages or benefits, those will stop and the world with which we had compromised will often serve as the punisher. And just to illustrate this point, I want to mention an exchange that took place uh, in writing a few uh, few years ago uh, between a, uh, a former, uh, actually a former college professor of mine named uh, Dr. David Gushy and uh, the president of the seminary where I attended, Dr. Albert Moeller. Now Dr. Uh, Dr. David Gushy wrote an article in which he stated that the Middle ground is fast disappearing on the LGBT issue. This was back in 2016. Now, years ago, when I studied with uh, Dr. Gushy, uh, I had him in my junior year at Union University for Christian Ethics. At that time, uh, Dr. Gushy was, uh, was orthodox on the issue. He uh, rejected this as legitimate practice, but not anymore. He has since changed his mind on the subject and went so far as to write a book with the title, Changing Our Minds. And that's that's what it's about. It's about going from a biblical Christian stance on this issue to an unbiblical stance. And he's trying to explain and defend why he rejected scripture on this issue. Anyways, Dr. Gushy wrote this article and he said, Middle ground is disappearing on the question of whether LGBT persons should be... Uh, Treated as full equals without any discrimination in society, and on the related question of whether religious institutions should be allowed to continue discriminating due to their doctrinal beliefs. It turns out that you are either for the full and unequivocal social and legal equality of LGBT persons, or you are against it. And your answer will be at some point revealed. This is true both for individuals. And institutions. He also wrote, Neutrality is not an option, neither is polite half acceptance, nor is avoiding the subject. Hide as you might, the issue will come and find you. And in a follow up article, uh, Dr. Gushy, uh said that what he was attempting to communicate to conservative, Bible believing Christians on this issue was. Watch out, I notice that volcano over there is smoking ominously, and if it erupts, hot molten lava will wash over you. He's essentially saying, you guys, you guys can't hide from this. You've got you to gotta do something. You're going you're gonna to get burned. And meanwhile, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller offered a helpful and I think rather ingenious response. And, uh, and Dr. Moeller put it this way. He said, David Gushy has openly declared himself to hold a revisionist understanding of Christian sexual morality. I appreciate the honesty. I also wonder whether he is himself ready for the coming eruption. In the revised edition of Kingdom Ethics, published just a few months ago, Kingdom Ethics was his ethics book. I've got the original one from 2003 where he holds an orthodox position. He since revised it to uh, come to this revisionist position. Um, He clearly advocates a covenant relationship as the basis for sexual bonding. That will not satisfy the sexual revolution who demand the celebration of what they describe as the full freedom in sexual and gender expression. They are not willing to accept any demand that same sex couples must get married in order to and commit to monogamy. But Professor, Gushy, uh, Professor Gushy's warning has been delivered and received. His words clarify where we stand, and I agree that the earth is shaking under our feet. At the same time, I have to wonder if the sexual revolutionaries and their erstwhile supporters and theologians understand just what they have set loose. Ask not for whom the volcano erupts, it erupts for thee. And I think that that is is very true and that this is the way that compromise with the world works. So often those with whom you have tried to gain common ground and gain acceptance will turn on you and destroy you unless you go full bore all the way with them. And even on those occasions where the worldly forces whom you courted by compromise, even when they do not themselves turn on you and attack you themselves, the very act of compromise is destructive in and of itself. All sin is destructive. And unless we overcome sin through repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we will perish. Compromise with the world is always going to be punished in some way. Sometimes it's punished by the people with whom you had tried to strike a bargain. And even if not, it'll be punished some way or another. And it leads to destruction. And certainly, that's what happened here. It led to the destruction of the Israelite nation. And notice then, here in the final point, the compassion of God. Notice what happens when Israel comes to its senses At the end of verse 9, we see them in great distress because of what they had done. Verse 10, they confess their sins to the Lord. The Lord's response in verses 11 through 14 is quite stern. And we see in it something similar, I think, to that ironic command that we saw in Amos chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 this morning. Amos told the people to enter Bethel and transgress and to multiply their transgressions in Gilgal. It's an ironic command. Obviously, Amos is not encouraging idolatry. But we see something similar here. How after reminding the people of how he had delivered them from their various oppressors and enemies, the Lord reminds the people that they had abandoned him and tells them that he will not deliver them. And then says to them, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you. In your time of distress, now obviously, the Lord is not commanding idolatry, but was speaking to them in such a way as to show them the wickedness and the foolishness of their chosen course of action and to bring them back to repentance. The statement there in uh, in uh, i guess it 's uh, verse thirteen Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will no longer deliver you. I think we have to understand that, as, uh, as John Gill put it, not in an absolute sense, since he did, after this, deliver them, but in a conditional sense, that he wouldn't deliver them unless, that is, they repented of their idolatries and forsook them. And so the Lord was saying this to, to bring them to a sense of their danger. I'm not going to deliver you based on on your current practice, your current practice of idolatry. But the people did repent, as we see in verse 16. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And then we're told that the Lord could bear their misery no longer. It was as if Israel was saying there in verse 15 where they say, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. When they when they said that, it was almost like they're uh, foreshadowing the words of David when David would say later, Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for he is merciful, but let us not fall into the hands of men. They acknowledged that they deserved punishment for, for what they had done. And that's the way repentance works. When we're truly repentant, we... We're open and honest about the fact that we deserve judgment for what we have done. As these people were here, they, they recognized God could do whatever he wanted to them for their sin, but they asked that the Lord would deliver them from this particular punishment. And in that they truly repented, we see that the Lord took action. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. In other words, the Lord began to act with compassion toward them. Psalm 103 verse 13 teaches us that just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The dire straits of Israel put the fear of God back into them. And then the Lord changed his manner of acting toward them. And as this chapter ends then and chapter 11 begins, we see the Lord begin working in accordance with their request that, they, uh, that the Lord would deliver them. We see the Lord beginning to work to deliver them and raise up a deliverer for them from the sons of Ammon. And the ultimate cause of the change here in the Lord's dealings with the people ultimately lay in God himself. The cause of God's gracious dealings lies in his own gracious character. It's true that repentance is required, but the ground of our hope is the mercy and grace of God, not the depth and sincerity of our repentance. Now, may God grant us all deep and sincere repentance. But even if he does, all of our repentance and turning from sin is still riddled with sin and imperfection. As such, our own repentance and our own efforts at walking with the Lord is no place for grounding our hope. Our only hope is in the mercies of God through Jesus Christ. And we see an Old Testament manifestation of those mercies here, and we know them and taste them far more deeply than they did, as we live now in the times where the ends of the ages have come, now that Christ has come and lived and died and risen again, now that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so let's recognize the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil for what they are. Let's Turn away from sin with true repentance and let's praise God for His great mercies and compassions which are dependent, thank God, not on us, but on Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercies and we recognize, Lord, that our own hearts are as prone to wander as the hearts of these Israelites of old. Perhaps it may not appear quite as blatantly so on the surface, but Lord, we know that our hearts are so quick to wander from you. Lord, we pray that you would keep us, that you would hold us fast, that you would cause us to persevere in walking with you. And Lord, that you would grant us true repentance, that we would see uh, those areas in which we have sinned, in which we have turned away from the teaching and commands of your word, that we would be quick to seek your forgiveness and quick to turn away from those things and walk with you. We ask your blessing and your grace upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.